0: Actually, a big motivation here, too, is that we're coming to appreciate that all that biodiversity in soil is actually also under threat. And so one of the missions of this company is to actually diversify soils and actually make sure, you know, both in restoration, we're rebuilding the biodiversity that was lost through intensive agriculture, but also in managed landscapes like forestry you know, can we make our managed landscapes reservoirs rather than the deserts of biodiversity below ground that they are today?
1: Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money and making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro. And if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Welcome to the 95th, yes, 95th episode of the Business for Good podcast. I've heard from several listeners that after listening to episode 94 with Zero Acre Farms that they have ordered new fermentation-derived oil from the company and are enjoying using that microbially produced oil, which is very cool. As I mentioned in the episode, my wife, Tony and I have been using it too and finding it to perform pretty well. Of course, I am not really the best judge since I'm not exactly known for being a culinarian. Hummus wraps are among my favorite dinners, but... Given that Tony is a professional cookbook author, her opinion is actually relevant, and guess what? She really likes it. So, last episode, we were talking about tiny little microbes. In other past episodes, we've talked about the power of plants, or flora. In some, we've talked about our relationship with animals, or fauna. So, you already know about flora and fauna. But, have you heard of funga? That is the relatively new way to describe this third kingdom of life on Earth, the vast number of species of fungi, which aren't plants—they're not animals— but are a different branch altogether on the tree of life. And it turns out that fungi are a lot more important than many in the past have realized. In fact, they seem to play a major role in just how much carbon the soil is sequestering. Certain fungi, it seems, are particularly effective at storing carbon than others, and in making trees grow a lot faster. Some even say that a 1% increase in soil-based carbon could be sufficient to stop an increase in CO2 in our atmosphere. Enter mycologist and entrepreneur Colin Averill and his new startup, Funga. Having just raised a million dollars of seed venture capital, or maybe spore venture capital, he is seeking to start reforesting depleted land and converting it into biodiverse carbon sinks much faster than would otherwise occur on their own. Think of it kind of like a fecal transplant. Yep, you heard that right a fecal transplant, but instead it's more like a fungal transplant. Stay with me. It may sound disgusting, but we now know that you can take feces from a healthy person, inoculate a sick person with them, and yes... By saying inoculate, you know what I mean. Insert it into a sick person and the good microbes populate the colon of the sick person, turning that person well. Similarly, you can take the rich, biodiverse soil from a healthy, old-growth forest and inoculate agriculturally depleted land with it and biodiverse life returns, causing trees to grow up to three times faster than they normally would. So, how do you make a business out of reforesting ex-agricultural land? Let Cohen give you the scoop of soil on how he and Funga are going to monetize this type of carbon capture. Colin, welcome to the Business for Good podcast.
0: Hi, Paul. How are you doing? Thanks for having me here.
1: I am doing just great. I am a fungi fanatic like you. I also like to perceive myself as a fun guy, um, and I presume that you do too.
0: (laughs) Always, always, man.
1: Yeah, there's too many uh, fungi-related puns that I will try to spare us during this interview uh, from from too many of them, but uh, I'm really psyched to be talking to somebody who's devoting your life to fungi, and so, you know, most of the time, uh, people don't really think much about the fungal world, but you do, and let me just ask you first, Colin, why? Like, how'd you get even into thinking about fungi in the first place?
0: Yeah, totally, so my interest in fungi goes back a long time. Uh, I was an undergrad. Um, who got really interested in climate change in the 2000s. And as I started that journey, I learned some of the biggest uncertainties in climate science were actually what's happening in soils and how those affect how the earth works. And a big part of that was, you know, no one really had any conceptualization of all the life and biodiversity in soils. None of that actually made it into the carbon cycle science models. And so... I, you know, I began learning about fungi and particularly mycorrhizal fungi, fungi that form a symbiosis or a partnership with the roots of most plants on earth. And I thought, this is obviously massively important. Why is this not being included? Um, And I learned uh, through my time that, you know, there was just this massive rift between the people who studied fungal biology and microbiology and the people who built the terrestrial ecosystem models that went into the climate science models. And so I, I decided I wanted to spend my time studying, you know, being that interface, being able to speak to both of these communities, learn their languages and do the science that really needed to be done to actually bridge those really, really different scales.
1: That's awesome, man. That's awesome. So just for a way of um, definitions here for people who aren't familiar with mycorrhizal. So myco just means fungi and rhizal means roots. So there's these connections between the roots of plants and fungi, which we can talk all about. But before we do, I want to ask you, so I'm saying fungi, you're saying fungi. Do you think that one is correct or incorrect, or is it more like just whatever floats your boat?
0: (laughs) There is consensus in the, the fungal biology field that you can say it whichever way you want. (laughs) <laughs> whatever. Makes it Some of my See, colleagues say fungi, which yeah. sounds terrible to me, but I don't stop them.
1: I have heard Europeans say fungi. That, that to me is pretty unattractive. At the same time, I, I will say like, you know, we call them fungus, fungal. So why fungi? Like I agree. I, I've heard that it is equally acceptable, but if it's fungus and fungal, how do you get to fungi rather than just fungi? I, Paul, I actually could not tell you. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I'm gonna make, I'm, I'm gonna go on a crusade. I think just to uh, change, t- tilt the power, uh, tilt the balance of power here to fungi, um, because also fungi doesn't lend itself to as many jokes as fungi. Um, but so, <laughs> so you got into you got into this, and let's just talk about this briefly before we talk about your company here, because you've really devoted your academic research to studying the role that fungi play in the forest. And so a lot of the times people are just thinking like, yo, let's plant a bunch of trees. Um, But you're saying planting trees isn't enough. Why? Yeah.
0: So when we think about a forest, we think about what we can see, what's above ground. And that absolutely makes sense. You know, above grounds where photosynthesis happens, that's how, you know, carbon and energy enters terrestrial ecosystems. But um, it's what you see above ground is really only half Of what's there, you know, in many ecosystems, there actually can be as much or more biomass below ground in root structures than above ground in stems and leaves. And as you start to learn about root architecture, just the patterns of where the roots are, you see they're massively intertwined and overlapping. So different root networks of different trees are just all with, you know, built up within each other. Um, So it becomes really clear that there's this enormous potential for really important ecology to be going on below ground. But when you look closely at these roots, and I mean very closely, like you need a microscope closely, you realize they're not really just roots at all. They're also fungi, right? Like, so all trees on earth, nearly all trees on earth form this symbiosis uh, with mycorrhizal fungi. And this symbiosis is essential to basically how all trees access these critically limiting soil resources like water and nutrients. Uh, and so they allocate a ton of resources down there. Um, there's estimates that the amount of sort of just, you know, sugars and energy a tree allocates to these mycorrhizal fungal networks can rival or exceed the amount of you know, resources and energy they put into the foliage or the leaves of the tree. That's how important these organisms are. And yet you just really don't see them. So when we think about um, restoration, for example, we're going to go plant some trees in a place that's having a really challenging time recovering on its own you know, we don't think to plant the below ground microbiology, but really we know in ex-agricultural landscapes where most restoration happens, the fungal communities that are living there look nothing like the ones in these intact forests. And so a big part of our research right now is trying to understand, can we actually, when we restore forests, what if we restored the below ground microbiology and the fungal biology? Could we uh enable restoration of difficult to restore places could we accelerate restoration by doing so accelerate carbon capture and climate impact
1: so basically your claim colin is that if you restore that fungal microbiology in the soil or what you refer to as the forest microbiome that you can get trees to grow a lot faster and therefore capture a lot more carbon more quickly is that right is that an accurate summation of your view
0: Yeah, exactly. That's, that's exactly it.
1: So, so let's talk about the microbiome. Normally, you know, to the extent that people have even heard of a microbiome, they think about it within themselves, right? Like in your intestines, you have this microbiome. And we know that uh, basically, the more biodiverse your microbiome is, generally speaking, uh, the better off you are. In fact, uh, you know, some studies uh, even show that your microbiome can control how happy you are. Um, You know, we think that things, you know, like money or status or whatever, is going to bring us happiness. It turns out, actually, our our microbiota may uh, may be playing an even bigger role as to how happy we are. Um, But it's not just in our intestines that there is a microbiome. You're saying that in the soil there is also a microbiome, and that planting trees in soil that is pretty lacking in biodiversity is just not going to cut it, right? Exactly.
0: Yeah, I mean the the work on the human microbiome done by, you know, medical microbiologists is truly inspiring. It's just there's so many things your gut microbiome does for you. And that is only more true outside in the forest. So we know soils are the most microbially biodiverse habitats on the planet. A handful of soil easily contains over a thousand coexisting fungal and bacterial organisms. Um, so these are incredibly complex systems uh, and it's likely that you know plants actually depend even more on their microbial communities than people do.
1: Okay. So if plants are depending on it more, so then that that really begs the question then, Colin, so how do they lose the the microbiome in the first place? Like how does soil go from being rich in biodiversity to being poor in it?
0: Yeah, so I think... It's, it's useful to draw an analogy, again, back to the human microbiome. So one thing that can really wreck your human, your gut microbiome is if you get hit with a really hard dose of antibiotics, and maybe you really need that to treat a disease. I'm not saying don't take antibiotics, uh, but that can wreak havoc on all the beneficial microbes in your body. And actually, that people also hit you with antibiotics to if they want to reintroduce beneficial microbes into your body. We do things to the land that are essentially equivalent to hitting it with a gnarly dose of antibiotics. So a lot of forests in the world are cut down uh, for the purposes of agriculture. So we might cut down a forest, burn it, practice intensive agriculture for years and years with chemical inputs, things like nitrogen fertilizers that we know annihilate these symbion- symbionts. And many of the forest symbionts that we're talking about, so the, the fungal The fungal buds that only form a partnership with the roots, they just can't survive if the tree is not there. So after, you know, 5, 10, 100 years of intensive agriculture, that soil is devoid of those fungal symbionts. They're really, really difficult to find. Uh, And so that is one way you actually lose all that beneficial fungal biodiversity. And so if you go and plant a tree out there, I mean, often it can be successful and there are things that will blow in. They just don't happen to be the ones that have the potential to be the most beneficial to these trees.
1: Got it. And since we're talking about deforestation here, I I do think it's helpful. You know, you mentioned, Colin, that it is uh, for agricultural purposes, but uh, just to give a little bit more color, um, you know, it's not just agriculture. I mean, really, it's meat. So uh, uh, there's a recent Vox story on deforestation, and I'm just quoting from it here. And they say, you know, deforestation is not for toilet paper or hardwood floors or even palm oil. It's beef. And they go on. They say clearing trees for cattle is the leading driver of deforestation by a long shot. It causes more than double the deforestation that is linked to soy palm oil, wood products, all combined, according to the World Wildlife Fund. So basically, we are deforesting our planet to produce meat. And that is causing uh, enormous amounts of climate-changing emissions that are going into the atmosphere and a whole host of other biodiversity problems just destroying wildlife habitat and so on. But you're saying that you can actually accelerate the process of reforesting these areas. And uh, to me, it seemed like almost like um or have you um I, I can't imagine you're not given what you're doing Colin, but are you familiar with like the fecal transplant stuff that people are doing now
0: absolutely yes
1: all right all right so like you know people who have sick if they're sick they have like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease or other like intestinal ailments and their microbiome is all screwed up and then they go and they take feces from a healthy person. And this is actually a medical procedure. It's not like people are doing this in alleyways here. It's an actual medical procedure. And they do like a fecal transplant from the healthy person into the unhealthy person. And that new, um, the new microbes basically populate and outcompete the old microbes. And the person becomes healthy again, which is pretty insane. But to me, that sounded like the most similar thing to what you are suggesting here so tell us tell me am i correct in analogizing these two and if so what is the equivalent of the fecal transplant in your world colin
0: yeah paul no that's a great analogy and we use it all the time we've taken a lot of inspiration from that work uh so yeah we you know the question really then becomes you know it's what a, is it's a healthy the, forest microbiome
1: yeah the, the fecal fungi connection is just uh it's always ubiquitous <laughs> on people's tongues apparently
0: yeah it just rolls right off the tongue um Yeah, we, you know, so we can do that because, you know, medical microbiologists sequenced the stomachs of thousands of people and they discovered certain microbes and certain bacteria were indicative of health and disease. And then they basically, once they understood that, they could start taking feces that contain the beneficial microbes from the healthy people and use those as a transplant or an inoculation into a sick person. And so when we go to the forest, the question then becomes, what is a healthy forest microbiome? Um, to do that, my research team has been sequencing hundreds of forests uh, across Europe over the past three years. Uh, we foresters have been documenting forest health for decades, and we particularly hone in on tree growth and carbon capture as the health metric we're interested in. And then basically what we have started doing is saying, OK, we've discovered that certain fungi, particularly these symbiotic fungi, are indicative of about threefold variation in tree growth and carbon capture. So if you had two pine forests sitting side by side experiencing the same weather and climate growing the same soils if one had the right fungal microbiology these analyses would suggest it could grow three times as fast capture three times as much carbon as one with the wrong fire fungal microbiology sitting right next to it and so, so what would
1: same, same yeah. tree same tree but three times more carbon capture Exactly
0: And so Continuing with your fecal transplant analogy, you know, the next thing we do is we're like, let's go source fungi from these systems. But instead of taking, you know, feces, we go to the forest gut, which is the soil. We take the soil that is filled with all these potentially beneficial fungi and bacteria and other organisms. And we use that as our transplant material in these lowest tech studies. And so that's actually how we begin sort of manipulating the microbiology in these systems.
1: Wow. That's really amazing. So you can take soil from a healthy forest and bring it to an area that has been depleted through agriculture or some other means and essentially create the conditions where you can have trees that capture a lot more carbon, which is really impressive. It's very impressive. And in fact, you know, we did a past episode, Colin, on this show with Global Thermostat with uh, Graciela Chichoninsky. Are you familiar with Global Thermostat? It's a a pretty interesting startup. They're doing direct carbon capture from the air. And so of course, Mm -hmm. that's what what trees do, obviously, but they're trying to, uh, you know, spend uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in order to build facilities that will suck carbon out of the atmosphere. But it sounds to me like, and there's, you know, there's huge amounts of money going into direct carbon capture from the air, but it sounds to me like maybe this is a more cost effective thing to do than just sucking CO2 straight out of the air. What do you think?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Right. We have two sort of climate solutions at our fingertips right now. You know, one is these engineered solutions like direct air capture, like you're describing. They're incredibly promising, but they they're incredibly expensive right now. And it's not clear when or if they're going to come to scale. It's likely going to be decades. And right now, a ton of carbon removal with a direct air capture machine usually costs in the neighborhood of a thousand dollars a ton. If we wait the 10 or 20 years it needs to scale up that tech, we're going to miss miss our window on climate. We need to stop emitting carbon, but we also need to remove a lot. And that's not an opinion. That's consensus science from the IPCC. Um, We need to remove carbon from the atmosphere. And the tech that is ready to scale today is biology, it's forests, it's trees. And so these sorts of approaches need to be, you know, put into action now. And they're a lot cheaper. We think we can do these things for things like prices like 50 to to $100 a ton. So 10 to 20X cheaper than what direct air capture costs now.
1: So let me ask you then, Colin, like you've started a business in, in I believe in like the last year or so, is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So you started this company called Funga. And for those of you not familiar, so if you think about fauna and flora, like the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom, Funga is the relatively recent term to describe the fungal kingdom. So there's flora, fung- uh, flora, fauna, and Funga. Your company is called Funga. So I understand, Colin, what you're saying that you can grow trees faster and that you can reforest and capture carbon. But where is there money in this? Like, how are you going to actually make money as a company?
0: Yeah, so there's an emerging demand. For that carbon removal, you know, as we wake up to the risks of climate change, there's uh, all of a sudden a voluntary market for carbon removal has popped up. So there's been some particularly progressive companies like Microsoft is a great example who have committed to both, you know, hitting net zero, so zeroing out their own emissions by 2030, but also removing all of their emissions since they became a company back in the 70s, right? So you can't, you know, avoid the emissions that you've already put in the atmosphere. You need to remove them. And so more and more, we're seeing more and more pledges to actually do carbon removal at scale. Most recently, uh, the Frontier Climate Organization is an advanced market commitment. So this, an advanced market commitment is basically how they started to get drug companies to uh, produce vaccines that might... Not have a market in the future. They said, no, we're going to put up the money now because we want you to build this technology. So the Frontier Climate Initiative is a group of corporations that's put down a billion dollars that is just for carbon removal. Um, And these sorts of proof points um, are really stimulating everybody sector wide, you know, across industries to say, you know, we want to have net zero commitments. We want to cut our emissions as much as possible. And what we can't cut today, we're going to have to remove and we need to find a way to remove it. We want to be there to say, hey, here is one way you can remove your carbon. And in the process, you may be able to, you know, build fungal biodiversity back into these ecosystems.
1: That's really cool. Um, It sounds awesome. And I know you've raised some venture capital. Um, I I saw um, some articles about your fundraising. So how much money has the company raised? Has Funga raised so far?
0: We've raised about a million dollars so far. Mm-hmm. So just to get so, started uh, and hire initial team and get our first sort of projects in the ground this winter.
1: Great. So, what is the actual business? So, I mean, you're you're making a case, Colin, that I you know very much sympathize with. Basically, taking healthy soil, transplanting it into a place where you need where that soil was needed, and then growing trees that can capture carbon a lot faster than otherwise. But. What's the proprietary nature of this? Like you're calling it tech. So what is the tech? Like why, you know, why would somebody invest in your company when presumably anybody could go dig up soil from another, from a healthy forest and put it into depleted land?
0: Yeah. So let's go back to the fecal transplant analogy. Let's say you had colitis or, or one of the diseases you uh, suggested. Would you, would you take anybody's poop?
1: Um, I don't, you know, I've actually wondered about this, like whether I would do this (laughs) under any circumstances. Um, I I, I realize like scientifically it makes sense, but no, I see what you're saying. You want, you want an expert, right? And so how are you? You want the right move? Yeah. 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 So how are you determining that? Like why, why, why is Funga the one to know what the right soil is?
0: Yeah. So, so part of this is because we're building really large data sets, you know, to, to, uh, to do this well, you need to know what a healthy forest microbiome looks like. And to do that well, you need to have thousands of paired observations of forest health and forest soil microbiome, particularly the fungal microbiome. Right now, those data sets don't really exist. My lab has built the biggest paired data set ever, and it's only a few hundred observations. And so what the company is doing is trying to accelerate that process massively. And then we also build technology to do it. And um, we also are trying to generate the information now beyond the handful of field trials we have from my lab to show that, yeah, we can actually induce these outcomes in the field. So this isn't just a nice idea. We can actually measure how much more the trees are growing, how much more carbon is removed. So it's those pieces all together that are really important.
1: Got it. Yeah, I know you're doing some large scale trials, um, both in Mexico and in the United Kingdom right now, which should give you some sense of this. But let me ask you, you, know, you mentioned a handful of soil has like 1000s of species that are all coexisting in there. How hard is it to tease out which ones matter? And is it one or is it a combination of them? Like, how do you actually figure out which ones are the right ones that are going to help the tree grow faster and capture more carbon?
0: Yeah, one of the interesting things about the work we do is what we've we found it's actually usually never just one it's usually um, some combination of many of them and so we've developed a lot of different approaches to abstract you know this incredible diversity into numbers that reflect different features of that diversity how these different fungi engage in different nutrient foraging strategies for example can be really indicative of the growth outcomes and so doing that requires knowing a lot about the the genomes of these fungi about how to take those genomes and, and phylogenetically extrapolate across the tree of life and knowing a lot about the ecology of fungi. So all of that goes into sort of the algorithms we use to figure out, you know, what is a healthy forest fungal microbiome.
1: Hmm. Um. That's cool. Have you have you considered or would you consider also doing any bioengineering to maybe ramp up the ability to sequester carbon? I, I know there's a, a startup called Living Carbon that's actually uh, bioengineering trees that apparently can grow dramatically faster than they would otherwise grow. And in the past, we actually had on a, a startup called Coral Vita, which was not bioengineering, but they were engaged in practices to make coral that they could graft onto dying coral reefs that would grow dramatically faster than coral grows in nature. So is there a way to uh that you've considered to speed things up even further given the crisis that we're facing right now
0: yeah so i love maddie hall and the team at living carbon and i think what they do is awesome for us because of the incredible biodiversity of these fungi that's present in soil we barely scratch the surface of what's possible with the variety of life that exists on this planet so for us you know, we see a lot of opportunity in actually leaning into the biodiversity rather than trying to reduce and simplify it and then genetically modify it. So we'd like to try and go the other way. And so there's many different ways to go at this. Historically, yeah, we've, we've picked high performing species and strains, select and bred them and genetically modified them. But, you know, there's a lot of value in actually building and, and taking advantage and using that complexity and biodiversity because we know that can actually imbue other features to the ecosystem, particularly stability. So, for the same reason, you might diversify your stock portfolio, you might want to diversify an ecological community.
1: Got it. Well, speaking of diversifying your stock portfolio, so presuming there are investors who are listening and want to add some of Funga's stock in the private market to their own portfolio, what do you plan on doing? So you've raised a million dollars, you're doing these field tests, you haven't actually started reforesting yet. So what are the opportunities going forward? How much money do you think that you'll need to succeed? Like, what is this company looking like in a few years from now?
0: Yeah, so right now, uh, we've taken some money to make sure we hit our winter planting targets. So our first projects are focused in the southeastern loblolly pine footprint, which is one of America's biggest forestry markets. Um, In the next six to eight months, we will kick fundraising on again, and we'll be looking to raise about $4 million to go from there. And the, the point of that fundraising is so we can expand our footprint. In these areas, to build bigger data sets and to begin operating on much larger footprints of land, talking we're talking like thousands and thousands of acres, um, so we can actually have the the reach we need to create meaningful climate impact.
1: So, if you're doing thousands of acres, like how much soil is that? Like, do you know like how much new soil per acre that you need to add in order to increase the biodiversity that's needed?
0: Yeah, so, so that's one of the things. It, it doesn't work if you keep digging out soil. You run out of soil eventually. Once you hit the scales, you actually need to hit. So a big part of what we've been doing is actually developing new approaches that are proprietary to uh, not just dig soil out of the ground. Like that is our lowest tech fecal transplant way that allows us to get started. Uh, but we're piloting lots of new approaches now to scale it up without digging up the entire forest.
1: Got it. So how, how much change in the soil is needed? Like I, I was reading that it could be even as little as a 1% increase in soil-based carbon sequestration that could be sufficient to stop an increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Is that your impression that as little as getting the soil to sequester 1% more carbon could have that type of an impact?
0: I mean, it, globally, if you, if you increase soil carbon pools about 1%, you get 20 gigatons. I don't think that would be enough. But I think what they actually mean is increase. So we, we measure soil organic carbon as a percentage. So normally, like a, a really depleted soil would have less than 1% carbon, and a really healthy soil would have like 5 or 6% carbon. So if you brought all the half a percents to 1.5%, that's where you'd have huge impact. Hmm. um and yeah that that would be very meaningful and so we're building carbon in soils we're also building carbon in wood as well above ground one of the things we're really excited about is that while we know we're building soil carbon we don't have to rely on it yet because we also create outcomes above ground in the wood and wood is a lot easier to measure than all the stuff below ground
1: Yeah, for sure. And and it also has the uh, benefit of creating habitat for more wildlife biodiversity, too. So, in all these agricultural lands, we've basically gone from biodiverse sets of nature to monocropped land for agriculture, primarily for raising crops to feed to farm animals so that we can eat meat. And uh, one of the things I really like about this is, you know, with direct carbon capture, it's obviously very promising, but it doesn't have any side benefits. Of course, you could argue, well, you know, sparing us from the worst climate disaster uh scenarios this doesn't really need any side benefits considering how good that would be um, but we need more forests to give non-humans a place to exist um, you know like the humans control and dominate nearly all of the landmass of the earth right now and it would be nice to give more uh, wildlife a chance to exist and I think creating faster uh, reforestation efforts would would help toward that end. is that part of your thinking on this as well?
0: Absolutely. You know, we're facing tandem climate crisis and a biodiversity crisis where we're living at the beginning of a sixth mass extinction event. And actually, a big motivation here, too, is that we're coming to appreciate that all that biodiversity in soil is actually also under threat. And so one of the missions of this company is to actually diversify soils and actually make sure you know, both in restoration, we're rebuilding the biodiversity that was lost through intensive agriculture, but also in managed landscapes like forestry. You know, can we make our managed landscapes reservoirs rather than the deserts of biodiversity below ground that they are today? And by doing so, can we create positive outcomes for wood production for our forest farmers? Can we create positive outcomes for carbon removal?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's certainly hope so. Well, it's a really cool idea for a uh, for company, Colin. I'm glad that you are uh, converting your academic pursuits into a for profit business that hopefully can work with the Microsofts and others of the world to try to reforest this planet that we have so thoroughly deforested now. So, my hat is off to you for that. Obviously, you have uh, done a lot in your life uh, from going through a PhD program to being a founder of a company and raising seven figures of, of venture capital here. Have there been any resources for you, Colin? that have been useful so if somebody's looking at you and saying man i'm really impressed by what this colin dude has uh done here are there any resources that you'd say hey check this out it was helpful for me and maybe it will be for you too i think
0: if you're really interested in fungi and you know all the potential there is uh in fungal biology for solving the problems of the planet uh i would highly recommend the book entangled life by merlin sheldrake uh merlin did his PhD in fungal biology, but he's also happens to just be one of the most eloquent writers I've ever read. And he takes you on a journey on all we know, but also all the incredible things we're just learning and all the things we don't know about what fungi do. And it's just, you finish this book and you're inspired to like go out and do more work. You know, I've been studying fungi and ecosystem science for 15 years. And even I was left. You know, just astonished and and re-energized by that book. So I highly recommend Entangled Life. Uh, And also, there's so much going on in the sort of climate tech space. And a really great resource for that is the My Climate Journey podcast. I found it invaluable. It really, it spends a lot of time working at the intersection of, you know, what are the big problems here, but also what's happening on the industry and the startup and the business side to solve them. Um, so that's been invaluable for me to get a handle on the space.
1: Cool. Well, we'll definitely link to both that book and that podcast in the show notes for this episode at businessforgoodpodcast.com. I loved Entangled Life. I thought it was a great book and I work in the fungi space and I learned so much from it and I've recommended it to a lot of people as well. So uh, totally agree on that. But I haven't listened to the podcast, My Climate Journey, so I'll, I'll certainly be checking that out too. Thank you for that recommendation, Colin. So finally, like obviously you've started a company, you're devoting yourself to it, and it's something that you obviously are very passionate about. But presumably, there are other ideas that you hope that somebody else maybe would take on, since you don't have the time to do it. So, are there any other company ideas that somebody's listening might take the reins on and go start themselves that you think would be good for the world?
0: Someone needs to do the same thing in agriculture, like food agriculture. Um, so much of what we're doing in food agriculture, again, you know, the history of agriculture is an exercise in reductionism. We identify high-performing species and strains genetically modify them, and selectively breed them, then we plant them out in monocultures. And it's made a very productive food system, but we're coming to realize it's extremely fragile, extremely sensitive to extreme events, um, and incredibly dependent on chemical inputs that have huge externalities. You know, there's opportunity here to go the other way, to start using soil biology and diversifying those soils again, and leaning into the biodiversity component of this. Um, And so we're really focused on trees and forests because I study these symbionts and, you know, they have unique biology that we feel like we know really well. But I think there's a ton of opportunity in food agriculture. The other thing is we got to measure all this carbon and we're developing our own stuff to like get verified by all these agencies to guarantee that, yes, indeed, additional carbon is here. And we can do it and we know how to do it, but it doesn't feel like a thing that requires our expertise. I feel like I should be able to call somebody and say, hey, come measure my trees and, you know, confirm to the verification agency that, yes, indeed, there's more carbon here.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems like trees are basically just carbon pillars, right? Like we're just, you know, just pillars sitting there just storing carbon, and we could use a lot more of them. Planting trees alone is is not going to be sufficient to uh, stop runaway climate change, I don't think, but it is a key part of what we need to do in order to not only sequester carbon, but also give some of this planet back to the thousands of other species with whom we share it. So I really appreciate uh, what you're doing, Colin. Um, I hope that you can take up a lot of room uh, on the planet with your trees that are going to be growing. Maybe even say take up too mushroom, uh, or maybe not. It won't, maybe it won't be too much <laughs> room. We'll, we'll find out, but, uh, I really appreciate what you're doing and I will be looking forward to fungus success as you continue to, uh, both measure and eventually start inoculating some land to grow more trees on.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much for the po- time, Paul. And thanks for all the work you do highlighting new companies, you know,
1: it's very kind of you. All right, Colin, thanks again. All right. So long. Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good.